over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books, all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. So we are in a big book series where each Sunday I try to cover one book of the Bible, and this should be an easy one, only 25 verses. 20 hours later, I'm still saying, what do I say? It's a postcard, and many call it that. I've entitled it to forgive a thief or no longer a slave. Both of those fit well in my estimation. Let me read a couple of our friends, Boa and Wilkerson and others. Paul's postcard to Philemon is the shortest and perhaps most intimate of his letters. A masterpiece of diplomacy and tact in dealing with a festering social sore in the Roman Empire, human slavery. Onesimus, a slave of Philemon, had stolen from his master and run away to Rome. There he met Paul, who was under house arrest, and he, implication, he met the claims of Jesus Christ. After his conversion, Onesimus faced yet another confrontation, this time with his estranged master Philemon. Paul sends him back with his letter in hand, urging Philemon to extend forgiveness. Onesimus had left him as a bondservant. Now he is returning as a brother in the Lord. Um, Onesimus is a funny name. It means useful. Um, it be a good name for a dog. No use for a cat, so don't name a cat that. But if you have a dog, <laughs> call him Oni for short. Um, there's a bit of a wordplay going on in this book, and it really is quite funny. Uh, we have to talk about slavery in a moment, but it is quite funny that this slave was called useful. And that word's going to show up a, a bit later in the storyline. He is a runaway slave. Uh, there are those that think there was some altercation. The text seems pretty clear that he stole and he stole from his master, and he flees to Rome. And in part of that backstory where Paul says, I'll repay, it seems that there was some financial remuneration or uh, restitution involved. So that's part of the letter that we'll see in just a moment. Um, it is interesting also that this short 25 verses, as we count verses, is such an intimate letter because he is writing to an individual, but he also mentions the church. So it's very personal, it's very inside information in a way, and it deals with some difficult topics, not the least of which is forgiveness and welcoming one another back. Uh, the biblical events concerning this time, again, Rome is quite a distance away from Colossae, and uh, if you're in a small town and you want to get away with crime or get away with getting caught, you go to a larger town. And you just very common sense. So he has escaped his master. He's gone to Rome, and he thinks he's going to you know, work his way into the crowd, into life. Who knows what he had in mind? We don't know all the backstory. But it does seem clear Paul led him to the Lord in verses 10 and verse 16 of this short letter. And that is the identification. He's come to Christ. Now he's a changed man. But 
You've got business to attend to back home, so to speak, and that's where the letter gets interesting. Let's look at the appeal that Paul wrote to Philemon. In this letter, he's entrusting this person back to his master with two things in mind. Um, Number one, he's a brother in the Lord now. And as a brother in the Lord, he's my brother, Paul's saying, and he's your brother. Secondly, um, he had a spiritual debt to Paul, Philemon did, and in like turn he's saying, "Uh, Philemon, uh, you owe me. And it's a very interesting piece of literature. And that's what kind of got me in a rabbit hole was this wasn't just a cursory read of, uh, you know, you need to welcome him back. There's a lot going on theologically in this storyline and a lot of personal intimacy. But, you know, Philemon, you owe me. But not in a sort of a demanding or a manipulative way. And that's where we have to be careful. Um, as we designate or count these verses, 25 of them, the overall message, one could argue, is about forgiveness and acceptance of someone. That's one of the many themes in this short little letter. As I was reading this over and over and over, reading commentaries about it, it's so interesting how people will jump off the metaphorical cliff and get into slavery. And they will talk at length in these commentaries and articles about, you know, why didn't Paul or Jesus come out and renounce slavery? Why didn't they stop slavery? And these rabbit trails go on in, in scholarly works for a long, a lot of ink. And as I'm reading the Bible and studying it again and again, I keep asking myself the question, where do we inject the social issue of the day back into the text and demand the text answer a problem of the day. And this is huge today. This is huge today. And Christians are divided about masks. They're divided about all kinds of things, about race, about gender, and they're angry at one another, and they're taking and cherry-picking passages and trying to have the Bible answer a question that may or may not be clearly addressed in that passage. And this gives me a little freedom to, to give you a little bit of a story about my own experience. And perhaps uh, it will help you, perhaps not, but I, I believe it's important. I started reading the Bible in the late 70s. I came to Christ in 71, and I read the Bible periodically, but I didn't know how. It was confusing. It was hard. Where do you start? Where do you stop? And by 1976, I up, I'm in college now, and uh, Stephen F. Austin State University in Nacogdoches, Texas, go Lumberjacks. And um, it's a small state school, and there was a crusade, an intervarsity, a navigator group, and they were all struggling, crusade now is crew, forgive me, crew group. Um, and there was a college church there, a church on, near campus called Grace Bible Church. And I visited these small groups as a young college person. I'm uh, going to college, working part-time, almost full-time through college, and I'm, I'm, I want to learn the Bible. And I didn't know where to start or what to believe, or, and I'm in these groups, and they're talking about different things, and I'm scratching my head going, well, is that what the Bible says? And I had a lot of bad information from my own upbringing, and I'm hearing different things from different people. I'm confused. So two things drove me. Number one was hunger. I wanted to know what this book was about. And secondly was discipline. And I'm, I'm a fairly disciplined kind of guy. I can get up in the morning and I can read for an hour. Uh, I'm not a Marine. I wouldn't have been a Ranger or Navy SEAL. Uh, but I'm a pretty disciplined person. 
And so those two things came together that I have a hunger and I want to know and therefore I'm going to be disciplined. So I started getting up at five in the morning in my little rent house in college. I didn't drink coffee at the time, but I started drinking it for effect. And I bought a $20 coffee maker and uh, didn't even know what I was doing. And I drank this terrible black liquid. And I sat in a house with no central heating with a sleeping bag rolled around me. And I drank my coffee and read my Bible and didn't know what I was doing or why I was doing it. But I was determined I was going to learn. I had starts and stops. I had confusing times. I had times that were exciting and fun. Times that were just downright boring and arduous. But I kept at it. Some of you know my story. You know the old saw, if you do something 21 days, it becomes a habit. So I set my alarm to get up and shower and sit at 5 in the morning. And the 22nd day, it wasn't any easier or any better than the first day. That theory doesn't work for me. And so I just, I'm going to stay with it. And I was 5 out of 7 days, 4 out of 7 days, 3 out of 7 days, 6 out of 7 days, 7 out of 7 days, beating myself up. i got to read the Bible. i got to learn this stuff. And lo and behold, it dawned on me after three years of those starts and stops, confusing, frustrating, not knowing, enjoying it, all points in between. It's not that I have to, it's that I get to. It's not that I should, it's that I can. It's not that it's a labor of love, it's because I love. And I can't tell you when the switch went off precisely for me, and I can't tell you when or if the switch will go off for you, but I'm going to implore you with my last breath, get your nose in the book. The culture is eating us alive as Christians. And we're being sucked in unwittingly to all these issues that don't matter. They don't matter. What matters is this transaction called the gospel. What matters is that a guy who's a thief, who's caught, who runs away, who comes to Christ is going to go back and make restitution, but he's not even going to make restitution. Someone else is going to do it for him. This story is a mind bender, and it's not simply about slavery. Yes, slavery is the backstory, but it's not merely about slavery. As I started reading the Bible over these 40-some years, two things happened to me, um, even this week. I am more assured than ever of what the Scripture says, and I am still overwhelmed. Nothing surprises me anymore in the sense that, you know, well, now that makes me more assured about the Word of God. And I'm not talking about what Michael thinks or what Michael believes. I'm more assured the more I read the Scripture, what the Scripture is saying, and I can depend upon God's very Word, not my experience. You depend on your experience, you're going to have a rough life. It's going to go up and down based on your emotions, your feelings, when life is working for you. If you didn't hear my friend Dave Gibson's sermon last Sunday, you need to go back and watch it. Because the nearness of God is our good, not how life is working or not working the way we define it. That's the American problem almost uniquely. We have equated American Christianity with I, me, my, and life working for me. If-then theology. If I do this, God should do that. If I do this, have a happy marriage. If I do this, my children will love Jesus. If I do this, I'll make money. If-then if theology is heresy. God may in his kindness bless us. And you know what he does? A lot. We miss a lot of it. But don't succumb. Don't let yourself 
I think I'll say that. Don't let the world teach you theology. And that's what we have done in this country. We've let the world dictate what we're supposed to think and feel under the guise of loving, under the guise of tolerance, under the guise of Paul was a misogynist, under the guise of the Bible's not relevant, under the guise of fill in the blank. I implore you, I implore you, get your nose in the book. This is, the world's crazy, amen? The world's crazy. This is stable. This is trustworthy. Of course people aren't going to like it. Of course they're going to disagree with it. Hello, McFly. Of course they're going to attack it. Get over it. Screw up a little courage. And trust him, not yourself. Trust him to do for you what you and I cannot do for ourselves. This backdrop of this story got me all spun up, as you can tell. I keep thinking about how the American church has gotten into such a mess. And if you read Christian news these days, it's beyond depressing. And um, there was a recent university that started changing some things. I won't name names or what they changed. But I about pulled my hair out because of a word that they've become woke over. You know what? They're letting the culture tell them what to do and think. I'm not saying you can't be kind. I'm not saying you're strident. I'm not saying you're King James only and everything. I'm not saying you're going to beat people over the head with the Bible. I'm saying have a little courage that God is sovereign and you're not. Have a little courage that you can believe something when the world doesn't. You don't have to be mean about it. You don't have to go all apoplectic about it and scream at each other on social media. It doesn't help anyway. The nonsense of these... Think, think back on... On denominations, I don't want to name names, but I'm going to name one. The Methodist Church. John Wesley was called a Methodist as a pejorative criticism. Those Methodists. Because he taught them a methodical way to study the Bible. Just like the word Protestant is a pejorative word. Those protesters, those protesters' Bibles, a.k.a. the Protestants. We don't know our history. But Methodism was considered a, a dirty word, and Wesley never wanted to start a church. He never wanted a denomination. He didn't want a church after him. He wanted to teach people a methodical way to study the Bible. Now, there are a handful of Methodist churches in the world that still teach the Bible, that are still what we would call evangelical, fundamental, Bible-believing. But the brand as a whole has become culturally liberal beyond recognition to the Bible. If a mainline orthodox denomination over time can be eroded to become what it is today, what is happening to the American church today? And we will not succumb to spending time on the isms and ologies of the culture Apologetics is a brilliant thing. I follow a number of apologists. Interesting, a lot of women are becoming apologists. And I step back and look at that culturally. A, the failure of men. B, uh, women see what's happening to their kids and they're getting ticked about it. Don't get between a mama and her cub. And she's going to teach that son or daughter what to believe and how to believe. Good for her. And so there's a large movement of women apologetic. Uh, people in social media and print and blogs and so forth, and I, I applaud what they're doing. What strikes me is that 
you don't convince anybody through apologetics. Now, let me, let me caveat say, yes, some people came to Christ through an apologetically process where they were challenged critically and they thought critically and they heard people that were great apologists. No doubt about it. Did most of us come to Christ through apologetics? No. Technically, yes, because someone shared the gospel with us, but not in the way we think of an apologist. What does apologetics do? It cements what you believe. And that's where it's good. Because you refine your faith on what you believe. So when we come to Scripture, I hope we're refining our faith on what we believe the Word says, not what the world tells us. I don't want to be a fatalist or depressing. It's not going to get any better, men and women. That's where it takes a little courage. That's where it takes a little hope. That's where you should have a confidence that the world does not. Because your confidence is not in yourself or your apologetic knowledge or your scripture knowledge. Your confidence is in the person and work of Jesus Christ and the transformative power of the transaction we're going to talk about in a few moments. Um, This is a terrifying scenario that we're in. For, for quite a while, I've been saying, we don't, Americans don't know our history. We don't, we don't know the Civil War. We don't know the Boston Tea Party. We don't know the Stamp Act. We don't know anything. We're just idiots. Let's just all say amen. And we failed. We failed. And that's why classic education has come back. That's why some homeschoolers are waking up. That's why tutorials are saying, we're going to do a better job of this than the culture. Don't let the culture teach your kids history because they ain't going to do it. How much more biblical history how much more biblical history? This country is 200, less than 50 years old. It will not last forever. I hope it lasts a long, I hope it lasts till my grandsons and granddaughters do really well. And after that, I don't care. But uh, <clears throat> listen, you have to come to an encounter with your personal sin, your own guilt and shame, your desperate situation. Money, sex, and power will never fulfill your longings. And you have to have an encounter with the person and work of Jesus Christ. Period. That begins the foundation by which we then live. That's the real story of this book. So my, my big, you know, my dying breath's going to be, do you trust this? And if you do, your life should look a little differently than the culture around you. And when I say that now, I'm saying the Christian culture around you. Because the Christian culture has lost its mind. Now, not that I have any feelings on that. (laughs) Let's look at why I'm using this as a launching pad to talk about this and flip in Philemon chapter 1, verses 4 to 9. I thank my God always making mention of you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in, we'll stop there for a moment. This is a fascinating prayer and one I spent a lot of time on because I'm going, what is this phrase that he's using here? I don't think he's used it before. Look at it again. And I pray the fellowship of your faith may become effective. Stop right there. What's he talking about? What is he saying the fellowship of your faith become effective? I didn't know the answer to that. So rabbit hole number 84 this week. Let me just give you the 
Cliff Notes, financial generosity. I know it's a big jump, but that's what it means. And Paul uses the same, the same ideology and same language in Philippians 1.6. We talked about that. I'm confident that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ. He ain't talking about sanctification. He's talking about your money. And in the end of Philippians, he goes back to that saying, basically, be faithful to fulfill your commitment. So the first thing out of the chute in this book, this little tiny letter, this postcard as many call it, is he's saying, I pray that the fellowship of your faith will become effective. Evidently, Philemon had money. Evidently, Philemon had been generous. And Paul is bringing that up in this letter And I would argue pretty definitively in that culture, they knew what he was talking about. Say it simply, Philemon's faith is demonstrated, careful, because of his every good thing being generous. Now, be very, very careful how I'm nuancing this. I'm not saying our good works justify our salvation or our good works prove our salvation. I will never say that. I will say our good works are an outflowing of understanding our salvation. Our good works, you've heard me say this, are a thank you back to God. If I really trust him and believe him and understand what he's done, I want to live obediently. and I do that joyfully. I choose to do that. I don't have to. I get to. Am I supposed to? I can. There's some supposed to in it, but you understand the tension. So a lesson right out of the beginning of this is Is your fellowship of your faith effective? Or said really simply, are you generous financially? We'll come back to that. Continuing verse 6 and into 7. For Christ's sake, for I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through your brother, through you, brother, Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you. I love this. I love this. I could tell you to do it. I'm an apostle. I'm an old guy. I'm in prison. I'm an elder statesman. I could command you to do it. I'm going to appeal to you. Since I am such a person as Paul, the aged, and now a prisoner of Christ Jesus. That's powerful. I mean, this may be like glancing off your forehead. I'm sorry if it is. This is potent. As an apostle, I could tell you to do this. You work for an overbearing employer at some point in your life, they can tell you what to do. How much more likely are you to work for an employer if the man or woman says, you know, um, I, I could make this a rule, I could change policy. I'm just going to ask you, men and women, will you step up? Will you do the right thing? Which is more appealing? Which is more likely to have effect? Make a policy out of it. Yeah, that works real well. Why don't we appeal to people? And that's essentially what he's doing. Paul has the confidence in Christ that Philemon will do what he's asking him to do, not out of a command. Another lesson here, Paul's not afraid to call him out to do something good. Paul's not afraid to say, would you consider this? As your children get older and you get beyond the rails of being the authoritarian parent to tell them what to do and how to do it, you will learn appealing works better than commanding. I know your room is a toxic waste dump. I have yelled and screamed at you for umpteen years. That's why God gave doors and rooms to close the door. Uh, But I'm going to appeal to you. Would you 
show that you love your family and your mom and your dad and pick up your room once in a while. That would just be a simple demonstration. Isn't it fascinating how quick a teen can do what he or she wants, but to clean a room takes a year? It's a remarkable thing. We all, if you had more than one child, you have a messy child. They just build your sanctification. When uh, one of our children left, I won't name the name, we literally pulled the carpet up, kills the walls, threw the bed out. I'm not joking. We threw the mattresses away. We threw the furniture away and kills the whole room and repainted it and put a new carpet in it. It still stunk. It was like it somehow it was impervious in that room. It was very interesting. Um, appealing works good, but sometimes you need to call people to good. Have you thought about I, I don't I don't do marriage counseling. You don't want me as a marriage counselor. I've said it many times. You do not want to talk to me about your marriage problems. Depressed, don't be. <laughs> Complain about your husband and wife. I don't want to hear it. Be the man God wants you to be. Be the woman God wants you to be. Get back to work. Next. I don't make change. Some of you know that story. I have enough confidence in Christ. My confidence is not in a person's ability to change. My confidence is in their Savior's ability to motivate through God's Word and God's Spirit. He's a far better change agent than a guilty conscience. Verse 10, I appeal to you, again that word appeal, for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. What a wonderful line. Who formerly was useless. There's the word play. What was Onesimus' name? Useful. No, he was formerly useless to you, but now he's useful both to you and to me. I've sent him back to you in person. That is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel, but without your consent I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but be of your own free will. That your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion. Oh, i got to do the right thing, but by your own free will. Perhaps he was for this reason, separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever. Paul appeal, appeals language continues. His love in his heart is clear. And I also think, you know, all of us as we get older, you grandparents, some of you are older than me, don't you get a little more loving and patient and tolerant and kind toward your grandchildren than your own kids? I mean, after all, which one of our grandchildren aren't perfect? And you know you've arrived and lived long enough when your children say, you never treated me like that. <laughs> it's a win. Because you're learning. Most of the things that Cindy and I have learned on parenting, we learn at the expense of our children. And we're hard sometimes. And we're unfair. And we get angry. And we command. You're my, you know, maybe you should try appealing may not work. I'm not saying it's one-to-one, -one, but an appeal sounds a whole lot more appealing than a command or barking an order. Verse 16 is the money verse of the whole little letter. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. No longer as a slave, 
but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. The transformation of the gospel forgives our sins. We're no longer slave or free, Jew or Greek, male or female. We're one in Christ. That's another key verse, sharpening verse that's taken out of context. Myriad of groups remove that verse from the Bible and use it to push their point. No, it doesn't matter. In God's eyes, he doesn't look at wealth or poverty. He doesn't look at race or gender. You're either in Christ or you're not. And if you're in Christ, you're one. I find it remarkably refreshing that he did not choose 12 of the academic scholars of the day to be disciples. But he picked fishermen and stonemasons and tax collectors and everyday ordinary folks to do the work of the apostle. The transformation of the gospel is the only thing that changes sin moving from enemies to friends. It's the only solution to injustice. Oh my, how we've heard the word unjust and injustice used one in a hundred words today in the media and in news. Unjust, unfair, not fair, equality. Those are important arguments somewhere. They're not important for you in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ and the way you treat people. Not slave, not free. Not Jew, not Gentile. Not male, nor female. Those don't wash away genders or wash away race or somehow sanctify something. They say it doesn't matter on terra firma whether you're an African-American, a mixed racial background, an indigenous person, or a European white person now. I feel somewhat joyful that I'm the last person on the planet you can accuse and vilify without fear of repercussion. A white European male who happens to believe in Jesus Christ. We are the scapegoat for all the ills of our culture. Don't let the culture teach you theology. Could we be kind? Yes. Could we be this or that? Sure. You'd be better off if you're here. I want to be kind, don't you? I don't be ticked off at everybody. Easy as that might be for some of us. Look at the final restitution. It's a, it's a short letter, verses 18 to 21. If he's wronged you in any way or owes you anything, and that's where I argue that he did something wrong and stole, charge it to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. Now, I love this. And we put it in parentheses in our English Bibles. It's not parenthetical in the Greek text, but we do that because the way the English brain works. I will repay you, not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self as well. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ, having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. You could read this as very manipulative and very conniving if you don't understand this is the Word of God, this is the apostle who's appealing to his friend named Philemon to welcome back Onesimus and he'll clear the books on the problem. I will repay you, not to mention to you, that you owe me even your own self as well. That little parenthetical phrase in our English text tells us that Paul was influential in Philemon's coming to Christ. 
I shared Christ with you, Philemon. Your life was changed, Philemon. You became a believer, Philemon. You owe me. Not manipulative, reminding him. Not using the apostle command brandishing tool. Remember, Philemon, you were once separated from Christ. Remember, Philemon, you embraced the gospel. Remember, Philemon, we're brothers. I love this young man. Ostensibly, I don't want to send him back to you. I like having him around. He's an asset to us in Rome. More important that we get the books cleared and send him back to you and make restitution and that you welcome him back. We don't know the end of the story, but I'm going to make an educated guess. It worked out pretty well. Tychicus and maybe others went with Onesimus, it seems, and they go back to Colossae and they deal with Philemon. And I got to believe, put your name in there every time Philemon is mentioned. Would you do what Paul asked you to do? Would that appeal? Would you say, okay, I get it. Well, you don't know what he did to me. Well, I'll tell you what, whatever he did, I'll take care of. Next question. I run into argument real quickly, don't I? No manipulation because the gospel's in action and the gospel is never manipulative. Paul is willing to repay the debt. Four observations slash lessons. This little 25 verse book tells us financial generosity is a demonstration of a person who's faithful and loves Christ and wants to help others. Period. In all the years I've been doing this and I don't want to sound um, oh, what in the world? I'm going to say it. Uh, people that complain about churches and money are people that don't give People that are generous might come along and say, have you thought about this? I want to help out this. I want to do that. Generosity leads. People that complain and are stingy and tight-fisted expose their own misdeeds. It's remarkable. Useless, now useful. I love this. I love this. Can I tell you something really unkind? You're useless until you know Christ. And then you're useful. If you lived in Texas, there's an area called H-E-B, Hearst, Euless, and Bedford. And those who don't think highly of useless will call it useless Texas. Not very kind if you're from useless, sorry. I just, my mind wanders. I was a young, young pastor in Grand Prairie, Texas, 29, 30 years of age, and I met this um, retiring uh, Christian counselor named Floyd Sharp. I tell lots of Floyd Sharp stories. For 15 years, he was a mentor to me. And uh, Floyd hadn't been around the block. Floyd came to Christ late in life. And the first time he came to Christ in a church in Houston, Texas called Bethel Independent Presbyterian Church and the teaching of Dr. Ed Bloom. The first Sunday he went there for reasons I won't detail. Um, the second Sunday he said the plate was passed. He had a very thick Texas drawl. He said, Michael, I reached for my wallet when the plate came by. I never gave money to anybody. I wanted to give. Something changed. And that man changed radically. He became an elder of a church, a little church at the time called Irving Bible Church. They had this pastor in the 60s of a guy, no-name guy named Chuck Swindoll. Had a flat top and horn rim glasses. He went from there to bigger and better things. Floyd had been around a block. Floyd became a dear friend and mentor to me. Lots of silly stories about Floyd. He would visit the church on occasion. He went to a different church in Irving, and he would come over to Grand Prayer on occasion, and he would, we would have coffee once in a while. Michael, God is using you. I never heard anybody in my life tell me those words. 
God is using you. And my own pride or fear or false pride, whatever it was, I'm not going to analyze it. I did not want to hear those words. I didn't want to get the big head. I didn't want to jump to the wrong conclusion. But I heard a man say to me over and over again for 15 years, Michael, God is using you. You know one of the messages I tell to young men today over and over and over? God is using you. Useless, now useful. You, men and women, you, young people, you high school students, you young guys and gals, God can use you. I don't know if that means what it meant to me. That blew my mind as a 29, 30-year-old young pastor that God could use me for good. Each one of you has a sphere of influence. Health practitioner, education, music world, technology, homeschool, mom and dad, stay-at-home parent, whatever your gig you got a sphere of influence, and you need to reframe that as God. Can I, can I play Apostle Paul for just a moment? I appeal to you. See that God is using you. Open your eyes to see how God is using you with the people you rub shoulders with day in, day out. Slaves no longer. What an incredible phrase. Once a slave to sin, now a brother in Christ. True freedom of slavery. And all this falter all of, you know, the, the red X's and everything we're doing for sex trafficking and slaves. I, I applaud all those interests. I'm going to ask you a really hard question. Do you understand you are no longer a slave to sin? Those are important efforts. And oh, by the way, a little history lesson. If it wasn't for the UK and America, there'd be more slavery today around the world. You can vilify this country all you want. And I'll join you in a lot of the things that we've done wrong and do wrong. If it weren't for a handful of Christian politicians who fought to their last dying breath for the so-called abolition of slavery, it may well still be going on in this country. We don't know our history. Much more important. We're slaves to sin. But when you come to Christ, you're a brother, you're a sister. You're free from that. Romans 6, 7, and 8 will drive you mad. You are no longer a slave to sin. You don't have to do what sin compels you to do. Finally, someone else paid our debt. What a great segue. Someone else paid our debt. I'll take care of it, Paul says. Whatever he's done wrong, and by the way, I'm signing it with my own hand. It's like an IOU. You can take this to the bank, Philemon. I'll take care of whatever Onesimus owed you. You know my sanctified imagination? You know what? You know what Philemon did with that letter? He goes, don't worry about Paul. Don't worry about it, Paul. I get it. I get it. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonomorphic, and music composed by Chad Cates.